What a joy it is to be able to sing with you today. Um, Chris and I were gone last week, and so one of the greatest things we missed was being with you and, and hearing you sing. My heart was so encouraged by starting out with A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I love when we sang together, let us keep our eyes on, it, on you. Let us keep our eyes on you. Wonderful. You had me there, and then we started singing, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. And in the chorus, we say, I will arise and go to Jesus. I love that phrase, in the arms of my dear Savior, I have need of nothing more. Nothing more. That, that'll preach. Thank you for preaching that to me this morning. And then, of course, who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save. Strong to save. Uh, so thank you so much for your songs. I just missed being with you last Sunday and worshiping with you. Uh, last week, Carissa and I enjoyed ministering to believers in two churches in Utah. Uh, first, we, we went to Gospel Peace Church on a Saturday and uh, spent some time in Logan, Utah. And we're just astounded at what God is doing there. Uh, it is a real joy to be able to, um, it was a joy to visit the, the worship location of Gospel Peace Church, a place they're renting, right up on the plateau, right on the top of the town. Uh, most people in the city would likely think it's holy ground right next to the temple there. Uh, but to see what God is doing um, and how he's using colonial through giving um, I think by this time we've likely given them around $100,000 or more to plant Gospel Peace Church. And then to see what God is doing through going, uh, the, um, uh, it, w one family uh, wasn't there, uh, the Kinseys, sorry, <laughs> blanked for a second. Kinseys weren't there when we went out, we'd just seen them when they visited here, but they moved from Virginia Beach to Logan, Utah to help plant Gospel Peace Church. We enjoyed spending time with the Tuckers. They send their greetings back to us here. Uh, we got to spend an uh, entire morning in the, the living room and house of John and Bethany Varner. And just so encouraged by their willingness to, to leave. Leave everything they knew here. They were trained through our church and seminary. They ministered here. We love them and God's using them greatly. Uh, you could find John every morning, every Sunday morning, supervising the setting up of Gospel Peace Church. I think over 150, 200 chairs, he pulls them out, gets volunteers together to see uh, John and Bethany and what God is doing uh, through them. And then, of course, to spend time with uh, Paul and Abby Campbell and their family and to rejoice uh, in what God is doing uh, through their ministry there. <clears throat> It was just really startling to me to see what God is doing and raising up a church. <clears throat> in Logan, Utah, I think over 125 people regularly worshiping every Lord's Day, <clears throat> including a young couple who just broke with Mormonism. They were saved and baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, with their parents attending the service. <clears throat> so I wanted to bring... Some of that back to you. Thank you for your giving and your going. And uh, rejoice in how God uses us as sinful men and women to point people to the gospel of Christ. 
also had the privilege of preaching at Gospel Grace Church, and from the sounds of it, maybe I yelled a bit too much there or something. <clears throat> oh, I do have water here, so no one run to get any, okay? <clears throat> I think actually I was just singing too, too much there. <clears throat> we got to minister at Gospel Grace Church in Salt Lake City. Um, Gospel Grace Church is, lar- is likely the largest evangelical assembly in Salt Lake City. Uh, when we worshiped with them on Sunday, there were over 500 believers, over, well, over 500 attending. The church is 10 years old, has planted two other churches in Utah for the glory of God. It's pastored by close friends of Carissa and mine. And it was a joy to preach five times from Mark's gospel about prayer to them. I preached Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I would just say that... Uh, Chris and I left with a bigger view of God. More faith in his ability. Perhaps you remember the story of the father in Mark chapter 9 who was pleading, pleading for Jesus to do something for his demon-possessed boy. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can. If you can. And then he demonstrates in the rest of the text, God can. I think a motto for me this year might be, he can. He can, I can. He can. He can do incredible, impossible things uh, for us as followers of his. So it's just a real joy to be able to spend that time in prayer. Spend a lot of time praying for our church and uh, for you and And so thank you so much for your willingness to let us go out to Utah. Well, as we turn our attention to Romans, it's been my desire to preach through this for quite some time. Uh, My journey with Romans started about 30 years ago. I sat in an undergrad Bible class in the book of Romans and was just astounded at its depth. Remember, the teacher I felt was a bit insane at that time. He assigned three 10 to 15 page papers, which was very unusual for an undergrad class, and uh, I I had to write a paper on Romans 1 through 3, Romans 4 and 5, and Romans 6 through 8. And uh, by the end of the semester, I did survive the experience, but uh, I will say uh, God began to stir my heart for Romans. Had the privilege of teaching through Romans uh, 10 or 15 times, but never had the privilege of preaching the whole way through it. So, we're all going to learn together. Um... I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who preached through Romans. He took 12 years. (laughs) And he only made it through the first 14 chapters. I don't know if he died or what. I'd have to look historically, ask a historical theologian. Maybe just quit. (laughs) Um, I don't believe I'll be taking that long. But Romans, it's a book that draws from all their books. It requires a good understanding of theology and and how the scriptures fit together. And so I'm excited to be able to begin this study with you. While Romans has a great historical value and theological depth and significance, I, I think I'm looking forward to it, to see its theological and practical effect upon our congregation in 2023. Paul's letter to the Romans was intended to bear spiritual fruit among Roman believers, and God has subsequently used it through the years to change the life of many individuals and communities of believers. 
And I believe God can. God can use Romans to do a great work in us. And so let's pray along those lines together as we start into this book. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted uh, to have this time together. We're thankful for what you can do with your word, and we would pray that you would do this in us. Lord, as we just take a few moments this morning, I, I pray that you would help us as we overview it even, just to understand more about how it fits together. Help me not to say anything foolish or wrong, and I pray that you would use Romans to do a great work in us through it. Lord, we desperately need to understand the gospel as described here, to understand its full significance, not only to save us, but to sanctify us, to change us, to call us to agree with one voice and unity so that we can proclaim it to others. Lord, do this work in our hearts. We don't say, if you can, we say, you can. Use Romans to change us. And that's what we ask for today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to just take a few moments with you today, about a half hour, uh, to walk through the book of Romans, hopefully to whet your appetite. Uh, I understand that many of you have likely gone the whole way through it. I I even understand there may be someone in the room, or a few in the room, who are likely writing a commentary on it or something. Uh, So... Um, We all come with different understandings, different knowledge of Romans, uh, the book of Romans, but uh, we're going to ask God to show us how this book is arranged, how it's put together, what purposes Paul had in writing it, and and in doing so, I hope you're encouraged to get into the book yourself and to determine to obey what God reveals to you through the book of Romans. So this morning I've got three foundational studies. By the way, I have a handout. Hopefully you picked that up. It's in the bulletin. If you haven't opened that up yet, you can see it in there. Um, I'll also be having a PowerPoint, I think. It should be queued up there. Yeah, a PowerPoint to hopefully help us look at these three foundational studies to help get us into Romans. Okay, so we start right away with something that I just call the occasion for the book of Romans. While some people approach Romans as an independent theological treatise or something like that, it's important to understand that all of Paul's letters are occasional. That is, Paul writes these letters in light of what is going on in his apostolic ministry and in light of what is going on in the life of the churches or the individuals to whom he's writing. He has an occasion for writing the book. And so this first study will look a little bit more at what we know from Romans about the occasion of the book. Now, being said that the occasion involves both Paul's life and the life of the churches he's ministering to, it's hard for us to know clearly which one of those is more important or significant for Paul's purposes in Romans. And so I want to look closely at what Paul reveals about these two things in the book. So first, what does he reveal about his own life and how that's impacting him as he writes? And then secondly, we'll look at what does Paul reveal about the churches to whom uh, he is writing in Rome. And so we ask what's going on in Paul's life. I think no one questions the Pauline authorship of Romans. It's been accepted as Pauline throughout the history of the church. And and even though scholars today really, uh, writing scholars, uh, reject that, which is nearly miraculous. Okay, Paul's the author of the book. 
Uh, he did, however, have help in writing it. If you go to the last chapter of the book, you look in verse 22, you'll see a man by the name of Tertius, Tertius, uh, helped him write in some way, whether he, uh, Paul dictated it word for word to him, or uh, Tertius just took shorthand notes and then produced the book. We don't know. E- either way, the message is from Paul. Okay, Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And then uh, verse 7, to all those who are in, uh, uh, in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It says, Paul the apostle's work, uh, Tertius's help, to the Roman church. Now, as we consider Paul's life and what's going on here in his life at this time, we, we, we know by looking at the last chapter that Paul's likely in the city of Corinth. He spent a lot of time in Corinth. You could read First and Second Corinthians books about his time in Corinth and his interactions there. We know that because he, he identifies a woman by the name of Phoebe in uh, Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Phoebe was a servant, uh, maybe a deaconess. Uh, We'll save that debate for chapter 16, way down the road. She was a servant of the church of Sencrea, which was the eastern port of Corinth. So as Paul's writing Romans, he says, uh, I bring greetings, or or you actually need to greet uh, Phoebe. He also mentions uh, two others in Romans 16, um, mentions Erastus, the city treasurer, um, and we're aware of an Erastus being in Corinth as a city treasurer. And then he, he mentions Gaius, his host, in whatever city he's at. And again, we're aware of a Gaius in Corinth. And so Paul writes Romans, this wonderful, wonderful book, while in Corinth on his third missionary journey, shortly after he wrote First and Second Corinthians. So if you're trying to put things together chronologically, it goes 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. Now, during this time in Paul's life, he is driven by two missionary projects. Okay, so so I'm thinking, what's going on in his life? These two things uh, really were on his mind and in his heart. First, the gift for the Jerusalem church. And we could read about these in Romans. So go to Romans 15, and uh, we're, we're trying to figure out the occasion for the book of Romans. What prompted Paul to write this book? And uh, one of the things on his mind is he was generating support for the Jerusalem churches. Look at Romans 15, verse 25. Romans 15, 25. Uh, It says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia, provinces of Greek, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so likely churches in Macedonia, like Philippi and Thessalonica, and churches in Achaia, like Corinth, where he's writing this book, have already decided to give, they've given, and Paul is going to send this gift down to the churches of Jerusalem. It's likely that the church of Jerusalem is overwhelmed by poverty during this time. There is some extra uh, biblical uh, historical information that helps us understand that there were a series of famines in and around Judea near this time. And so what's likely is that some, some widows from 
uh, places outside of Jerusalem, Jewish widows come back to Jerusalem because they're extremely poor and can't provide for themselves. They have no food for themselves or care for themselves. And so this is all left to the care of the churches of Jerusalem. And so Paul is generating a gift uh, from Gentile believers in cities all throughout Macedonia and Achaia for the Jerusalem churches to help them care for the poor. And so in Romans 15, Paul asks Roman believers to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, specifically about this gift. In other words, Paul writes Romans one of the reasons would be for prayer support from the church of Rome as he brings this project down to Jerusalem. Now, as Paul wraps up his giving project and his ministry in Asia and Greece, he also thinks ahead to the next phase of his ministry among the nations. And um, I would invite you to look at Romans 15, uh, verses 23 and 24 for Paul's description of a second missionary project that's on his mind. Okay, this project is the prospect of reaching Spain with the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 23. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you. <clears throat> Once I've enjoyed your company, for a while. So as we consider what's going on in Paul's life, one of the things we need to know is that he has never been to Rome. He had never been to Rome or interacted with the believers in the city itself, and so he writes to them out of his desire and plans to minister there too. His plans for the Roman churches, however, go well beyond just enjoying their company, as he describes here in these verses we just read. Paul desires for the Romans to help him with a second missionary project, <clears throat> another phase of his apostolic journeys. Remember earlier in Paul's ministry, he organized his life around three missionary journeys, and you can see a map of it here, right? Where he was reaching into parts of Asia and Greece, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you remember the book of Acts and what's laid out there, there is a church in the city of Antioch that acts as a sending church for the Apostle Paul. They launch him out on these three journeys. I've got it circled on your right side of the map here. Okay. Antioch. He goes from there on three missionary journeys. Now, the way Paul is talking in Romans 15, it, he's saying that his work among these locations is primarily finished. And so the seeds of the gospel planted churches all throughout Asia Minor and Greece. And so Paul is then going to unfold a new plan or vision for them. And that is his desire to go to Rome and then to be sent by Rome to reach Spain with the gospel of Christ. Okay. And one of the things I point out here, I, I didn't, didn't know how to do both maps on one slide. I could have done that, I guess, but... Um, is just the geographical similarities between Antioch and his mission to uh, Asia and Greece, what we just saw on the slide before this, and then his vision or plan to reach Spain and to use Rome as 
what some would call an Antioch of the West. An Antioch of the West. So Paul left Antioch and he went north and west to reach Asia and Greece. And Paul desires to go to Rome, believers in Rome, and to then go north and west to reach Spaniards with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if someone were to ask me what is on Paul's mind when he writes Romans, these two projects are there. As a way of kind of culminating his work in Asia Minor and Greece, he's got this one last gift to give to the Jerusalem churches, and then he's looking to go to Spain, and it's his prayer that he will go to Spain through the enablement and ministry of the Roman believers. Okay? That's what's going on in Paul's life. Now, that leads us to the next question. Well, what is going on in the Roman churches? In what condition were the churches of Rome, and did their circumstances influence Paul's letter to the Romans? Well, we could study a few things about the churches in Rome. We could study their spiritual condition, how he manifests it here. We could study their origins. That's a big you know, thing that some people would do in an introduction. You know, how was the church of Rome formed? Uh, I think the answer to that's not found anywhere clearly in the Bible. I think it is clear that Paul didn't plant the church. He desires to go there, never been there. He understands there are believers there. But instead of studying their origins, there are two other questions about the Roman churches I think that would be uh, helpful for us to look into. One is the ethnicity of the churches in Rome. Okay, and for sake of time, I won't get into all of this, but I could go throughout Romans and we could look at some texts in the book that make you think that the believers in Rome were more Jewish than nature. Uh, Texts like Romans 2, verse 17, there are people like Aquila and Priscilla among the church. They're Jewish in origin. So uh, there are other places, too, uh, when Paul describes uh, our father Abraham in Romans 4. You know, sometimes you might think the most likely reading of that, at least initially, would be he's writing to Jewish people or Jewish believers. Uh, you got that section in Romans 9 through 11 where it's, it's all about the Jewish people too, so why would Paul write such a section if he didn't, uh, wasn't addressing Jewish believers? So some people think they're primarily Jewish. Others point to different factors and say it's a Gentile audience, that they are Gentile believers among the churches of Rome. Romans chapter 1 could be taken that way, verses 5 and 6, and also verse 13, which position the churches of Rome, Rome among all the other Gentile things that God is doing in the world. Um, In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul describes people who did not have the law of Moses and their fate. Okay, and so uh, some people would say, no, it's a Gentile audience, but but really, as I look at both of these things, uh, I wonder how likely it would be that you could eliminate either from the audience of the churches in Rome. Uh, I think that a mixed church in Rome made of Jew and Gentile is what best fits the fact, including a major section, a controversial section, in Romans 14 and 15, okay? And that leads us to one other thing that's going on among the Roman churches, and that is there's some sort of trouble here in the churches in Romans 14 and 15. 
Okay, so we're trying to figure out what's the occasion. Paul's got a few things on his mind. Well, what's going on? What's the condition of the Roman churches? In chapter 1, it seems that Paul's generally pleased with what's going on, but when you get to Romans 14 and 15, it seems like there is tension in the church that Paul desires to address. There's trouble there in some way or another. Um, And I think that the trouble in the churches likely involves an important historical event that uh, generated some of this trouble in the church. And this important historical event is actually found in Scripture. Um, In Acts chapter 18, we find that Aquila and Priscilla, Jewish believers, have been forced to leave Rome because of an edict from a Roman emperor by the name of Claudius. In 49 AD, Claudius uh, gives an edict that all Jews must leave Rome because there was a stir over a man by the name of, and listen to the man's name, Crestus, okay, which some people believe is an alternative spelling for the Christ. So in Rome in 49 AD, things are in such turmoil that Claudius kicks all Jewish people out of the city for six years. Okay. Now, during that time, uh, I think the churches of Rome still continued to exist, but they would be made up only of Gentile believers. And I think it's likely that what stands behind Romans 14 and 15 and the controversy between the weak and the stronger brothers in the churches of Rome is that the Gentiles are changing things up a bit while the Jewish believers are gone and out of the churches. Okay, let me ask you, what would happen, or what do you think happened when all the Jewish believers left the churches of Rome? A way to modernize it for us would be, what would happen if we removed all of the traditional influences from a church for six years. Well, you've likely been to other churches, our churches. We don't have traditional progressives. We're just all together. You know, but like other churches. What would happen if you took all the traditional influence away for six years? Okay. And then, at the end of those six years, those traditional people come on back to worship. So, imagine the Jewish believers coming back to worship God, and they show up for worship on Saturday the Sabbath, right? And what have the Gentile believers done in the meanwhile? We worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Or as a good friend of mine, Sam Horn, used to always say, imagine the Jewish believers showing up to the church potluck, and they see that Gentile believers are eating ham sandwiches and hot dogs. Imagine a Gentile believer, well, what, what were we supposed to do? All the Jewish slaughterhouses were shut down for six years. We're supposed to be vegetarians or what? Jews would be like, yes. And so what's lying behind Romans 14 and 15, I believe, is the fact that Jewish believers are coming back into the churches of Rome one or two years before Paul writes this book. Romans. And so Paul is challenging them to welcome one another and to uh, prefer one another, not to judge one another uh, in these matters. There was, I believe, a rapid acceleration away from 
conservative Jewish tradition, their acceleration was away from the law of Moses, worship on Jewish Sabbaths, and so uh, that's a bit of what's going on in the churches in Rome. That's the occasion of the book of Romans, okay, including what's going on in Paul's life, two missionary projects, and the churches of Rome, uh, trouble among different ethnicities in the church. Um, I want you to try to keep that in mind, okay, because we're going to come back to that, but we need to move on to the purpose for Romans. And so as we come to the purpose, we might ask if Paul's driven more by what's going on in his life or what's going on in the Roman churches, and I think the answer is both. I think it's impossible to eliminate either from the occasion and his driving purpose for the book. Now, the driving purpose of Romans has to do with three things, Paul's apostleship, his gospel, and his mission, and then the Romans' response to those things. I'll just point these out very clearly, uh, quickly to you. Paul has got some things to say about his apostleship in several sections of the book. He starts out in the introduction by uncovering the nature of his ministry. Romans 1.1, he says he's a servant and an apostle. He's set apart for God's gospel. <clears throat> so he mentions his apostleship right at the beginning, and throughout he'll occasionally deal with it. And then he ends in chapter 16, I believe by identifying with people in the church of Rome so that the Roman churches would accept his apostleship. Okay, they, Paul has never been there himself, and so what he does in Romans 16, if you're ever reading through Romans, well, actually, this week when you read through Romans 16, you will come across 36 names. You ever see that at the end of Romans? You can flip there and look at it, 36 names. Why is Paul mentioning all these different names? I think it's because he's never been there before. He wants them to understand that God's called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Thus, he's an apostle over them. And so, as a means of verifying or authenticating his apostleship, he includes the names of 36 people who know Paul and know the Roman church believers. <laughs> these 36, as far as I can see, these 36 believers come from at least five different house churches in Rome. So he's like naming all these people he knows as a way of getting them to see he truly is an apostle to the Gentiles. Not to mention in Romans 16 and verse 16, in the middle of that verse, he gives us this summative statement after naming a bunch of these people. He says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Which leaves the impression that if they want to support and join all the churches of Christ, they will support and join with Paul, the apostle to these churches. And so he talks about his apostleship, perhaps more than in some of the other books that he writes, because he's never been there. And they need to follow and adhere to his apostleship. But he gives even more information about his gospel, the gospel that he preaches. The gospel is central to the book of Romans being the theme of its introduction. You know Romans 1, 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this is a book that's going to be about the gospel. He mentions the gospel repeatedly in the conclusion as well, chapters 15 and 16. So much so that uh, the gospel is like a frame around the book. Uh, one commentator Doug Moo called it the, uh, the frame of the letter, uh, epistolary frame for the whole book. And I agree with him that the theme of the entire book of Romans 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's got a lot about the gospel in the book. In between the formal introduction and conclusion of Romans, the body of Romans, uh, in the body of Romans, Paul goes through great lengths to expound upon the nature of the true gospel that comes from God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul preaches. Got a lot to do and say to expound upon that for Roman believers. And so because Paul has never been among the Romans, he gives a full, exhaustive description of the gospel that he proclaims among the churches. Uh, That also then leads to his mission with the gospel. Paul's driving purpose for Romans involves a defense of his apostleship, an explanation of his gospel, yet his purpose goes one step deeper than that to his mission. Paul desires for the Roman believers to understand the gospel that he preaches so that God will unite them in it to join him in his mission to Spain to reach unbelievers. You see, Paul is not appealing that they accept him and his apostleship as his primary goal. That's not like his main reason for writing Rome. You just need to accept me and my apostleship. Paul is not appealing to the Roman churches unite even, Romans 14 and 15, as his primary goal. There's a powerful section about the with one voice glorifying God together as believers, but that's not even his primary goal. No, Paul appeals that they accept his apostleship and rally around his gospel so they can join him in his mission to reach Spain with the gospel of Christ. Doug Moo again says it well. He says, Romans, in other words, is Paul's doctrinal statement sent on ahead to demonstrate his orthodoxy and worthiness of their missionary support. So when we think of Romans, a lot of times we think of this like theological treatise. We think of all this theology, you know, a manual for systematic theology. But what we need to understand is that there's an occasion behind it. Things are going on in Paul's life. Things are going on in the Roman church's life. And those things lead Paul to a literary driving purpose. His purpose is he wants them to understand the gospel. He wants them to be conformed to the gospel so that they can participate with him in it to reach unbelievers with the gospel of Christ. And that's a message I think each one of us need to consider today at Colonial Baptist Church. This is the work I'm asking God to do through Romans, right? Help me more fully grasp the gospel in all of all of its depth. Then, Lord, conform me to it in every way so that we can together reach the world with it. I think Romans will be helpful for us in this way. Uh, Finally, there's one last study I would give to you, and this I I really would encourage you to dig in yourself. We're actually going to In my last uh, five minutes or so, we're going to read through portions of Romans and think through it. I think uh, the form or the structure of Romans uh, after the introduction and before the conclusion involves three things. Uh, First, the theological issue. And uh, on this, if you have a handout and you flip it over to the back, you will see a more robust outline for Romans than even what I'm going to give you here, but includes these things. 
Three things lead Paul to write Romans as I'm kind of reading along. First, there's a theological issue. We must understand the nature of the, go- of the gospel, its nature, its power, and its history. In Paul's descriptions of the gospel's nature in chapters 1 through 4, he starts by showing that all men and women are condemned in their sins. God has uh, plainly revealed himself to human beings so that they are without excuse. And in response to God clearly revealing himself to them, human beings do not honor God or thank him, but they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve creatures more than they do the creator. Ultimately, as you keep reading in Romans 1 through 3, it it closes with this this manifold quotation of the Old Testament where Paul says, you know what, There, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become profitless. No one does good, not even one. So that, as he says in Romans 3, in verse 19, the effect of all of this is that every mouth may be stopped. And that's hard to do for human beings. Even in the presence of God, or even when we consider speaking to God, you know, we love to talk about our own worth and value and all this kind of stuff, but did all of this that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be accountable to God. You see, pressing down on us, as is found in Romans chapters 1 through 3 in these opening chapters, is the power and the pervasive influence of sin, sin, and more sin. It condemns, it damns, and it's true of every human being. But now, Romans 3.21 says, or 3.23, I think it's 3.21, right? Romans 3.20, but now... God's righteousness in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For as there was no distinction between the fact that all men and women are sinners falling short of God's glory, so now there's no distinction as all can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. That is, we can be justified by faith as our forefather Abraham was justified by faith because of something else that comes pressing in down upon this world and upon the pages of Romans. And that is uh, something that exceeds sin. And it's grace. So Paul could say, for where sin abounded, grace did what? much more abound. That's his description of the nature of the gospel. It saves us through Jesus Christ from the condemnation of sin. In his description of the gospel's power in Romans 5 through 8, he explains how the gospel delivers us from God's wrath, Romans 5 through 11, the outpouring of God's wrath. It delivers us from the condemnation of Adam's sin, Romans 5, 12 through 21. It delivers us from the reigning influence of sin. Delivers us from that law's captivity and it delivers us through the Spirit's power. Romans 8. So that he can ask, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we're reading through Romans 5 through 8, we're beginning to see a little bit of the power of the gospel so that nothing could separate us. That leaves us with one question. Well, what about the Jewish people? If Paul says nothing can separate the church from the love of God, couldn't one ask what about God's covenant love for the Jewish people as he's done with them? As he cast off his covenant with them? That leads Paul to a long and detailed description of what's going on with Israel in the past, present, and future, Romans 9, 10, 11. Where Paul in these chapters not only defends his own love for the Jewish people, but he defends God's sovereign purposes with Israel, his love for him, and he also defends their bright future in the plans of God. There's a future for Israel. This whole complex, you, you overwhelmed yet? It's going to take, what, 12 years, 14 chapters? <laughs> well, the whole complex, amazing argument about, Paul, about God and what he's doing with the Israel and church leads Paul, even Paul, to end with amazement, Romans eleven thirty three, when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Paul's theological issue. He wants believers to more fully grasp, to understand the gospel of God and how God has been working through it throughout time. And you know what? One could leave Romans there, right? You could leave full of theology. But Paul's not content to leave it at an intellectual or cognitive level, so he gives us Romans 12 through 15 to show us how the gospel must transform our lives. If you have the handout and you look at the back, you can see uh, that's when we learn that conforming to the gospel involves having transformed lives, Romans 12, 1 through 21, subjecting ourselves to governing authorities, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Allowing the gospel to transform us involves fulfilling the law through love and walking in the light, Romans 13, 8 through 14, and welcoming and preferring one another. In these last passages, Paul aggressively pursues tension in the churches of Rome, and he orders them to please and welcome their brothers as Jesus welcomed them for the glory of God. And then he offers two powerful prayers for them. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful prayer for us as well. May the gospel impact you so significantly that that's how you treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You join together to sing the praises of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. That's Paul's pastoral issue in the letter. So he wants, the God, he wants them to understand the gospel. 
He then wants them to be conformed to it. And that leads to his missiological purpose. I put that word in there for Pastor Dan. Missiological. I don't even know what it means. His mission purpose, missionary purpose, in the letter of Romans. You see that Paul understands that they, Paul realizes they must understand the gospel, be conformed to it, so they can participate together in his vision to help him reach unbelievers with it. Romans 15, 14 through 33. If you're looking at Romans 15, he says he desires to be helped on his journey there by you. He desired to be helped on his journey there, Spain, by you. And then verse 28, he plans that he will leave for Spain by way of you. The Romans should help Paul in this missionary endeavor because he's trustworthy, as all of his friends can point out, and because the only wise God is due such glory. You see, Paul believed God can through the gospel. He can reach Spain, and it's his desire for the Roman believers to help him. Paul's deep faith in the gospel is found perhaps in no clear passage in Romans than the one I already quoted to you, and this is how I'll end. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God Unto salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's my prayer that as we go through Romans, we will conform our life to the gospel. The Spirit will do that in our lives and in our church. And that because of that, and because of what we understand to be true about the gospel, we would never be ashamed of it. Far, far from that. We would rejoice to share it with others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time together, and I pray that you would be honored and exalted by our study of Romans. Lord, uh, just try to overview this today, and it's far deeper than you can do in any 35-minute sermon But Lord, as we uh, come together today and we reflect upon the book, I pray that you would do a deep work in our heart and in the life of our church. There were occasions that Paul was addressing in the churches of Rome. There are occasions here too. Our situation might differ from Paul's in different ways or differ from the Roman believers, but we need the gospel as much as they We need you through your spirit to help us understand this, the full orb of its nature, its power, its history. And Lord, we need to not only understand it, but to be conformed to it. We need to present our bodies as living sacrifices to you, wholly acceptable which is our reasonable worship. Lord, we need you to transform our church 
through the gospel. Through the gospel. So that we are walking in love, fulfilling the law of Moses. So that we're walking in the light. So that we are welcoming one another in our differing positions, theologically or practically. So that we're preferring one another and we're not quick to judge each other. Lord, it'd be so easy to judge each other because we're all sinners and we get things wrong. But Lord, I pray that the, the gospel would have a deepening effect upon us so that we would welcome with one another, welcome one another, and love one another, and prefer one another, so that we're then ready to, with one voice, glorify God together. And Lord, I pray that the effect of this time in Romans would, would help us all not be ashamed, but to be ready or eager to take the gospel to those around us. Lord, do this deep work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.